Do you remember that classic scene towards the end when uh, Clint Eastwood confront, confronted the criminal with his gun and said, are you feeling lucky, punk? I would say that's a very good visual to asking yourself that question. You are listening to the AFIRE podcast, real estate, technology, cross-border investing, and the opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. You know, all the questions I hear, it's how to invest now. That's what people ask. How do I invest now in this market? Will distress give me all sorts of meaningful discounts that I can jump on? If I buy now, though, am I catching a falling knife? I mean, today, here in the first uh, week or two of March in 2023, we're all facing an interesting, uncertain, maybe even a, a weird real estate market for investors. Inflation is rising. The Fed and central banks are still increasing um, interest rates, and, and only about a half of the workforce is coming into the office every day. So there's a lot of questions and not necessarily a lot of clarity in terms of what we should do and, and hard to have certainty as we go into our investing uh, plan. So I'm really excited to have uh, someone who's no stranger to bizarre market fluctuations and has managed to invest in good times and bad. Um, most of the people listening to this probably know Ethan Penner as well or better than I do from the standpoint that he is currently the CEO of Mosaic Real Estate Investors. He's an adjunct professor at Pepperdine University. He's a uh, he was the president of CBRE uh, and CEO back in the 90s in the go-go days at Nomura Asset Capital and several other places as well. Truly a leader um, for investors in, in these kinds of markets. So thank you, Ethan, for joining me on the AFR podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me today. You bet. Why don't we, why don't we just start broad? How would you characterize the market that we're facing right now? I mean, I think your um, summary of things is pretty, pretty on, on point. I think that we are in a very confusing moment. Um, it almost seems to a certain extent self-inflicted problems on top of some, uh, structural or organic problems, right? So the organic or structural have to do with, you know, you referenced office occupancy being quite low. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, the economy and therefore commercial real estate, which is just a derivative of the economy and the econ economy's vibrancy is in a highly uncertain place right now. Um, and I think that uh, on top of that, you've got a Fed that has decided to march interest rates higher and higher in their own mission to quash uh, what they see as too high of a level of inflation. And so the, the combination of those two things uh, has caused people to become quite defensive, has sucked a bunch of liquidity out of the system, has caused deals that were done kind of in the prior lead up three years to this to look quite questionable, right? I mean, it's hard to reconcile all the acquisition and financing that got done in a different and ultra low interest rate regime mm -hmm. uh, in today's interest rate regime where... Treasuries are three times higher than they were about a year or a year and a quarter ago. And mm -hmm. so the, the, the delta is really meaningful. And um, even though from an absolute terms, people say, well, gee, you know, 4% treasuries are still relatively low. If you are as old as I am and you look at the kind of trajectory of yields, but not when you're coming from one and one and a half percent treasuries right. a year ago or a year and a quarter ago. 
So markets reprice. That's the thing people don't understand about markets is that all prices reprice to certain levels of rates. Rates are the determining factor of price of everything, every financial asset, including homes. And and the reason markets reprice to that is because of leverage. People in real estate, especially, they lock in leverage or they sell at certain multiples and then the whole market reprices to that level. So uh, when that level of rates and cap rates change quickly, uh, there's problems. And so I think, you know, I think we're definitely looking at a, a challenging moment in time and where we go is uh, anybody's guess, right? I, I th- well, well, and it's almost like in real estate, we're always in a slow motion train wreck, not a, not a fast one. It, it, it's like, we know these things are there. The repricing is there. And yet, because the trades haven't happened, it hasn't happened. There, there's like plausible deniability perhaps around, you know, how bad the damage might be. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think in this cycle that's going to play out as people are, as these renewals are coming up or the, the mortgage uh, is is over and we have to refinance at that higher rate? I mean, what would you think is going to happen over the next, say, six months to 12 months? Well, I, before, I'll give you an answer to that question. But before I answer that question, I'm going to make an editorial comment slash observation on what you just said as the lead up to the question. It's true that real estate industry seems to be when things change the slowest to change, right? Or, or they're able to kind of say, our heads in the sand. I don't know what you're talking about, right? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my life is still pretty good. Uh, I don't really know exactly what you're talking about. I think that we all know that there have been many firms in, in our industry. We all know that we get marks to market if we're in the private investor world rather than the public, that is quite different than the public market conversation, right? So you have weeks mm-hmm. that are down 25 or so percent from their peak 15 months ago. And well, real estate itself in the private market, and certainly marks to market that LPs are getting from their GPs are not reflecting a 25% decline in values. Right. Um, and cap rates, you know, sellers are saying, well, what do you mean cap rates are five and a half? You know, that's not that's not for my asset, right? Right. And and of course, as long as lenders are not pushing the envelope or liquidity demanders, right? So liquidity demanders can change that. And that could either be a loan maturing or a loan acceleration or LPs asking for their money back in an open-ended fund, which is happening in certain sectors, certain areas of our business. And that creates the kind of realization that maybe real estate did move by as much as the public market suggests. But I think that this head in the sand, which I think the industry tends to like because it gives them certain level of the perception of lower volatility, I think is it does a great disservice to the to the industry itself and it causes much deeper pain ultimately right the the I don't know it, it breeds a certain le- a lower level of urgency or immediacy to changing market conditions that ultimately breeds complacency and and dulls the anticipatory response right so I think this industry in particular in my, I don't know, many decades now of being a participant in this industry, my observation has been going all the way back to the RTC period and before. It's an industry that 
fails to anticipate large macro changes. And I think it's because of this um, lack of mark to market uh, and, and therefore kind of this dulling of the need to be anticipatory to big changes. And then when big changes come, uh, the pain is felt so, so much more massively than had um, anticipatory actions being taken earlier on. So, so I think it's really, uh, it's one of those things that's viewed positively by the industry. Uh, people like the kind of, I sleep better at night knowing that, well, I don't have that stock market volatility if I was invested in a publicly traded REIT. And they don't realize that they do have that volatility. Vol you know, what's happening in the real world is happening in their world too. They're mm -hmm. just not realizing. They're choosing to pretend that it's not happening. So, so the volatility is there. It's just hidden that somehow we've created a, you know, exactly. a cloak over when, it. I mean, when interest rates go up from one and a half to four and a half percent on the treasuries, right, and borrowing costs go up accordingly, um, it's extraordinarily naive to say my my assets haven't gone down in value. I mean, that's idiotic. And in fact, it's absolutely idiotic. So the industry tends to do that. And it just, it doesn't really serve the industry's and the investor's best interests. And, and I would go so far as say, I'm going to point out another area where it's very painful, really painful to the industry for making this mistake. And I, it's called what we all hear, the denominator effect. Okay. Right. The denominator effect is fiction. Okay. It's just fiction. Yeah. And, and people in the industry know this, that it's fiction, but unfortunately it's not painless fiction. It's actually painful fiction. Um, so if you just follow the denominator effect, right, let's pretend that real estate as a percentage of a portfolio for an institutional investor is ranged between seven and a half and 10%. Well, when uh, interest rates go up and market securities go down in value, stocks and bonds, then, and, and real estate is not marked because it's in the private arena and it's not being marked uh, as aggressively or even at all, then in that moment, what was below 10% can now go above 10% because the denominator has gone down, right? The numerator right. hasn't changed at all. Now, had the numerator changed with market, they would have been at their 10% or below their 10%. But now that they haven't marked the numerator, but they've marked the denominator, uh, the investor now looks like they're overinvested in real estate at that moment and they pause. Well, at that moment that they're pausing, that would probably be the single best time to be buying, right? It's when prices right. are their lowest, okay? Right, right. So, so they don't buy when prices are at their lowest. Now they're waiting for prices, for the market itself to recover. So the denominator goes up. Well, when the denominator goes up, now they're getting buy signals, perhaps, when the denominator effect goes up high enough because their numerator, again, is not marked in, in conjunction with the, the denominator. So this go, occurs both when things go down and when things go up. When markets go up, they're underinvested, uh, because, but not really, because right. they haven't marked their numerator in the market on the upside either. Mm -hmm. And so when are they apt to buy most is when prices are highest, right? So people who are creating this fiction, become buyers when prices are highest 
and not buyers when prices are lowest, right? Mm-hmm. And even sellers when prices are lowest in order to kind of get back in and right size that, that, that measurement. So whoever adheres to this kind of fictional uh, scenario is handicapping their investment performance massively. It's literally like putting a gun to your own head and shooting, right? Because you're only hurting yourself by perpetuating this fiction and it is pure fiction. And so this industry needs to get way smarter in this regard than it is. And, uh, and its adherents need to wake up and say, it's not okay to pretend that our markets are our financial asset called real estate isn't moving with the rest of the world's financial assets. But it seems to me that part of the pause also happens, not just because of the denominator effect, but because what are you going to buy? Everyone's waiting, hoping. If everyone's sitting there waiting and hoping that they're not going to get marked down, they're not going to sell at a price that makes sense. Well, there is there is an element of uh, of kind of paralysis, right? Where people don't want to sell and they stall for as long as they can. And that's true. But ultimately, that gives way to a selling period in some form. And this group who are victims of the denominator effect never get to play in that moment, right? Right. They're, they're, they've locked themselves out of that moment. So I agree that we're, we're probably, you know, if you, again, if you study historical market downturn cycles, there's always this moment where uh, sellers are remembering fondly prices from a year earlier or six months earlier and and asking for something akin to that and buyers are saying you know there's a reality that's very different and they never meet until liquidity demanders which is redeemer redeeming lps or or lenders push the the gp to sell right and and that's ultimately what happens and that seems to be what's already started to happen here in the first quarter you're seeing a little bit of that not a lot but a little bit happening now getting back to your question i think so that was my editorial comment about the denominator effect and how it's really, and this whole fiction around um, that creates uh, almost an institutional laziness around being attentive to markets. And I think that's very harmful to the industry. I'm going to get back to your other question, which is what do I think about like where we're heading in the next six months? And I think, and, and, you know uh, how perhaps this moment is similar or different than past downturns. I think, I think that this is a, um, I think downturns since the RTC downturn have all been different than the RTC downturn. And everybody since the RTC downturn who's old enough or studied enough or knows people who got really rich during that period of time are always waiting for the revival of the RTC downturn. And investors are always attracted to invest in distressed funds in these types of moments because they all imagine that the RTC moment is going to recur. And of course, it has not recurred since uh, since then. So, I mean, really since the early I mean, 1990s. I mean, it seems to me that that is truly a one-off. Every time we go through a recession, I'm it like, is a one-off. RTC is a one-off. It happened once and, and there's a reason again. why. And there's a reason why it was a one-off. I mean, back then, there were no buyers. There were no organized investment funds to buy anything. So, so there was no buyers and there were four sellers and that created the price depression on all assets, not just crappy assets, but but even good assets that were all for sale because there was this massive imbalance 
of from forced selling and no buyer base to absorb that. And since then, there's been buyer base developed bigger and bigger and bigger, waiting for that moment. But by by the sheer existence of that buyer base, it almost guarantees there won't be a repeat performance of that first period of time, which benefited from the fact that there was no buyer base. Um, perhaps most profound in this particular moment and most concerning, I think, for those who would like to pursue opportunistic buying is that uh, the viability of real estate or big, big chunk of uh, real estate in the world is at question, right? The absolute viability, right? So to me, real estate valuation begins with the question of viability is do people want to actually be in this building or in this location? Right. And if the answer is yes, or maybe there's some viability. If the answer is no, or probably not, then there's a, then there's no price that's right for that piece of real estate. And, you know, another of probably the word we're more familiar with hearing is obsolescence risk, right? So obsolescence risk has been, in my mind, the prominent risk in real estate for the last at least decade. It's, it's been highly unappreciated, highly unappreciated. Uh, it has led me in my last fund to focus on mostly new construction in order to avoid obsolescence risk, right? Historically, people say, well, the riskiest thing in, in the real estate industry is new construction. And I really have believed deeply that it's the flip opposite, that the last decade plus, the biggest risk in real estate has been obsolescence risk. And the best way to avoid obsolescence risk is to focus on new construction. So, so uh, I've been fighting the fight against obsolescence risk on behalf of my investors for quite some time. I believe that obsolescence risk continues to be the biggest risk in the industry. And I fear that this kind of discount to replacement cost, that is the pervasive way of approaching opportunity investing or opportunistic investing is going to cost people a lot of money if they don't overlay on top of that the question of viability. Which that approach makes sense in a time when there isn't any change taking place or where obsolescence is, is slow, which we enjoyed for a few decades before we got to this period. Um, but that's not the case now. Yes. I think that, uh, I think that's a hundred percent right. I think that, um, it's a classic example of past formulas of success don't always guarantee success in the future. And that's, this is a good example of that. I think buying at a discount to replacement cost has been a really rewarding way of investing for a very long time. I don't believe that that's going to be the case. Uh, you can't just do that today without, again, asking the big question, what, what's the obsolescence risk here? Will people really ever want to go back to work in downtown Los Angeles again? I mean, that's a real question. I mean, buildings down there are, um, they're being given back and people are walking away, big people, right, are walking away from loans and buildings that they had supposedly tons of equity in or that evaporated to nothing, literally kind of in, a, in, in an overnight, what seemed overnight moment. Uh, our fund did very well, our last fund. We had 48 investments. Unfortunately, two of them were in downtown Los Angeles. So I know from what I'm speaking here, yeah. uh, on yeah. a first-hand painful basis, downtown Los Angeles is 
uh, is a it, like it's a zone of questionable viability today. And, and yet, you have so many investors talking about it. Well, it's different be, if I invest only in Class A, the best of the best, something that's you know less than ten years old. That if I invest in those offices, I'm safe. Is is that true? That you know, in downtown Los Angeles or Midtown Manhattan, if I'm getting those assets, should I also be worried about obsolescence, or are you pretty much in the clear? Remember Dirty Harry? Did you ever see the movie Dirty Harry? Absolutely, yeah. Do you remember that classic scene towards the end when uh, Clint Eastwood confront confronted the criminal with his gun and said, and and he was about to make a move, and he said, "Are you feeling lucky, punk?" Yeah, no. <laughs> in his way, <laughs> I would say that's a very good visual to asking yourself that question when you consider fighting against the viability question. I would rather, personally, I'd rather avoid it. I think that, I think that it's, it's a bit of a gamble, right? And I, I, as in, I, again, I think you mentioned I teach in business school. I love finance. I just, I just have a passion for it. And I ask my students every single semester, I ask them this question, which is something that probably is worth mentioning here for your listeners. What's the difference between gambling and investing? And it's a very interesting question, right? Because yeah. very few people really think about that. Um, and I think that within the context of real estate, you could find a spectrum. I think what we learn in class when we examine this question is that it's just a spectrum, right? It's not a hard answer, what is gambling and what is investing? And there's a hard answer to that question that kind of breaks one from the other. I think that there's a spectrum. Yeah. So I think because we even we even hear gambling words used by investors like the bet I'm making is blah blah blah. Okay, right, right. So that's yeah. a gambling way. That's a that's a gambler talking. That's not an investor talking, right? <laughs> <laughs> so like uh, you know maybe if you were saying I'm going to go buy um, what looks to be structurally sound office buildings in downtown Los Angeles cheaply enough. The bet I'm making is that the political landscape and is going to change dramatically, that the solution to crime and homelessness is going to happen in a short enough period of time to allow my currently unviable buildings to now be viable and flourish. That's mm -hmm. the bet you're making, but that's a bet. Okay. <laughs> that sounds like this sounds much more like gambling. Yeah, it seems like there's a, a gestalt change that has taken place in that for for decades, since probably the 1950s, an office investment in a downtown location was a safe bet. That was core investing. That was the safest of the safe. And what you're suggesting is that actually now you're you're in a gambling mode. Now you're in, you know, there's going to be some big payouts if you're smart about it, but maybe it's not quite as vanilla as it felt uh, 10, 20 years ago. I think smart or lucky, right? Because we all right. know gamblers that they're not necessarily smart. They just got lucky, you know? Right. Uh, I, I always love when you talk to investors and they focus on um, historical performance, which is, of course, one measure of whether you want to invest with this particular manager or not. Um, but without actually digging deep into how that performance was generated, it's very hard to come to a reasonable conclusion. So for example, if my last fund, my investors gave me their money and I went to Vegas and I put it all on black at the roulette wheel, 
my IRR would be phenomenal if it, that one role ended black, right? Right, and, right. And people would just go and say, well, gee, this guy's a genius, right? He doubled my money in a day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And if you didn't look deeper than that and you just looked at the IRR and the multiple, <laughs> you would really be very excited to invest with me in my next fund. Right. But if you right. dig a little deeper and you say, well, how did he actually do that? you would be mortified, okay? And you'd run away from me as fast as possible. <laughs> and I guess I would say, of course, I, I like to find these examples um, that prove the point on the extreme. Mm -hmm. uh, clearly in our industry, nobody is, well, nobody I know at least that's taking their uh, investors' money and doing that in, in, uh, in uh, going to Vegas. But I do think there is great spectrum of investment strategies with different kinds of risks where sometimes on the spectrum where gambling is on one end and investing is on the other, uh, there's a lot more gambling going on than maybe investors would like. Well, and, and, and to the point that if we're in an environment where things are changing, where investment strategies or the environment is changing, not just the investment strategies, it's very easy to fool ourselves that we're not going to Vegas on something that, that seems like it seemed 20, 10, 20 years ago. Um, I think it's interesting that, that the LPs are having to switch their minds too. If you walk downtown LA today, you would feel like you're taking, that there's a lot of gambling risk just walking around there right now. Forget about investing. Right. Uh, so I think it would become quite apparent that there's a gamble inv involved in that bet uh, more than an investment per se. Whereas I think, um, I don't know, buying apartment buildings today if you can, you know, if they were at a four cap or a three and a half cap um, a year ago, and they're now at a five cap because interest rates have pushed things higher, uh, well, uh, that's a more understand. That's, that's there's still a, an element of a bet there, right? You're still mm -hmm. you're still you're still hoping for and counting on. Um, perhaps either cap rate compression over time and rates returning lower, or you're counting on um, uh, rents trending higher over time. And, and I think that that's a reasonable kind of, you could back that up with some economic uh, logic, right? Well, if rates go down, cap rates are going to go down. And right. if rates don't go down, then we're probably living with higher inflation, which probably means rents will trend higher over time nominally. So mm -hmm. you could you could come up with an economic support for that investment, and therefore you can call that more of an investment. And you could say to yourself, and if I'm all wet and I'm all wrong, uh, I still am not going to lose m my principal, or maybe I, my, my losses will be very minimal. It's not the roulette wheel. Mm -hmm. And I think that... Uh, Again, so so for me as an investor, I'm a pretty conservative investor, and I always say to myself when I think about what strategies or strategy I want to pursue, I always ask myself if I'm wrong in my thesis, what's my outcome, and can I live with that outcome in a, in a being wrong mode? Uh, I think that to me, to a certain extent, that approach does start to move towards differentiating between gambling and investing. Because I think one of the things I think in gambling is when you're wrong, the losses can be either total or near total, catastrophic. Whereas I think when you're investing, 
maybe that's the difference. When you when you're wrong, you're you're still alive. You're not dead. And I think that's how I think that's how smart investors should be thinking. So poker versus roulette. Um, where you're thinking more long term, how do you get from hand to hand to hand, and you expect losses as well as wins, well, and, and knowing and knowing when to fold, and knowing when to fold, exactly. well, when to fold, right? Just lose, your just lose the ante, exactly. <laughs> you know, it, it, we just have to pay attention to pop culture in the '70s, and we'll know everything we need to know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, how do you invest now? Then, I mean, you know, you're a conservative investors. Most institutions like to believe that they're that they're conservative investors. How do you approach the market? that we have right now. Yeah. Well, there are probably a number of strategies that one can think of, but in my mind, um, U.S. housing kind of broadly seems to stand out when compared against everything else uh, as advantaged from a just a downside protection safety orientation. And so when you look at, to me, again, when you look at things um, I, I grew up on a trading floor at first at Drexel and then at Morgan Stanley. And I'm oriented towards thinking about relative value, which is one of the things that I think people in real estate perhaps have not historically done as good of a job as they need to in order to understand where the price action is going, right? You have to see relative value and say, well, how does this stack up against that outside of real estate? Because we're in the end, the one thing all investments have in common is they're competing with each other for currency, for the dollar, right? Let's say. And so a dollar doesn't really care whether it invests in bonds or stocks or office buildings or shopping centers or debt or equity. The dollar doesn't care. The dollar is looking for the best risk adjusted return. And so we're all, every investment's competing in that world for that dollar and that, and therefore needs to be priced that way. So when I look at the answer to your question, I start with saying, what's the benchmark, benchmark being safety in, in, in the fixed income world, which is where I traded, that was U.S. treasuries. So everything traded off of treasuries, right? So you said, okay, well, the, the 10 year treasury or the, is trading at a yield of X, and let's say today that's around 4%, just to pick a number, then that means that everything else that competes with uh, the, in the fixed income world that has a similar duration to the 10-year treasury doesn't have the same risk protection as the 10-year. The 10-year treasury is the safest. So everything has to yield higher than 4% that competes with that, right? Right. And, and I look at housing as being the equivalent in real estate of the treasury bond, right? It's the safest place. Uh, and we can go into why if you want, if there's time. But but I, just for now, for the purpose of answering this question, let's just take that as a, as a given that housing is the 10-year treasury of, of real estate. And now everything has to be trading off of that. Now, people are induced to kind of go out on the credit spectrum and walk away from the 10-year treasury if the yield premiums meaningful, right? And so you say, well, okay, if I'm going to invest in 10-year fixed income and the 10-year treasury is yielding four, for me to consider going to, I don't know, triple B bonds, you know, issued by either corporations that are rated triple B, which is still pretty good, or asset-backed or commercial mortgage-backed securities or whatever, I need to be paid a yield higher than 4%. 
And, you know, historically, maybe the spread is 150 for corporates above treasuries and maybe 300 or so for asset backs at the triple B level. And so I say, am I getting paid for that? Well, if 4% 10 year treasury means I'm going to buy CMBS triple Bs at seven, if they're not at seven, I'll keep buying treasuries, right? Right. <laughs> they start right. to get above seven. Then I start to think, well, maybe I'll take some of my money away from treasuries and, and, and take a shot at something here. I look at where commercial real estate is today, and I think that the the equivalent of treasuries, housing, and the yield differential between what can be earned in housing versus what I'll call the riskier stuff, office, hotel, shopping centers, it's not enough to make it worthwhile, right? I think that that stuff is, as we talked about before, given the obsolescence risk and given the economic vibrancy risk and given the kind of the idiosyncratic risks that are brought about by changing trends. So how people want to office and how people want to shop and whether there's a conference business for business travel or whether Zoom has really changed business travel forever. There's so many idiosyncratic risks related to changing human behavior that impact, I think, those asset classes that I think the yield one needs to be paid to be induced to go away from the treasury equivalent, which is housing, is very high and it's not it's not available today. The market doesn't see it that way. So until the market starts to see that yield differential and risk differential appropriately, keep buying treasuries, which to me means housing. And it seems to me as well that another factor that's like an X factor is you're looking at these other asset classes is that the risks that you, a lot of the risks that you listed, we still don't know what they are. We still haven't put some numbers to those risks. We can't price them yet, um, especially obsolescence. They're almost unknowable, aren't they? Yeah, it feels that way. And I that's mean, where I go back to the Clint Eastwood line, right? <laughs> because that's what it feels like. <laughs> I mean, until you can start to have enough history and understand human behavior and where it's going to sort things out, you're just get, you're guessing. You're acting like you know, but you don't know, right? So people that say, "Well, I know how people are going to office in Midtown Manhattan a year and a half from now." Are you kidding me? Nobody knows, right? Literally, nobody knows. And so, so we should be placing a, a much higher because nobody can know. It's not maybe that what was once triple B is now single C. Right. And maybe the the kind of stabilized, forecasted pro forma yield that one would require to go into that investment is now tantamount to a much lower level of grading from a risk standpoint, given the unknowability of of that asset. And then there are some assets that are off the scale unknowable. Right. Like, you know, and but I think you're right that the unknowability aspect of things is uh, is making things much more risky than I think the market is currently still willing to uh, price in. Well, and, and like Clint Eastwood's gun, which it may or may not have uh, a gun in a bullet in the chamber, this is like a Schrodinger cat uh, experiment where these buildings, they're both successful and unsuccessful until we open the door. We just don't know yet. Um, so I, it's this marvelous kind of point in time, I think, where prediction is 
especially messy and especially uh, gambly like it, it yeah. feels like we're still kind of we don't know yet what the chips are, no matter how much certainty people uh, express around what's going to happen with office, what's going to happen with CBDs, what's going to happen with hospitality. We still don't know yet. We just well, don't have the, the evidence yet. And when you think about those asset classes, they're, they're vulnerable today in a multitude of ways. It used to be that those asset classes are vulnerable to traditional recessionary downturns, right? Right. Okay, well, there's layoffs. And if there's layoffs, then there's less office workers, there's less business travelers, there's less consumer spending money. So there's less vacationers, um, there's less shoppers, right? And then the re- kind of a downturn gives way to an, a recovery and then all of those kind of blossom, right? And that's the normal cycle. Well, today you have that still, right? So today... Um, every day, despite the fact that we're publishing historical good employment numbers in this country, uh, there has have you seen a major company announce hiring? Because every day there's there's layoffs. So here right. we are in this bizarre kind of I don't know alternative reality where we're supposed to be very 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 happy about the fact that unemployment has never been lower, and yet every day. Thousands of layoffs, corporate layoffs are being are being introduced. And when I asked a friend of mine to explain this, he said, well, the service industry, meaning restaurant workers, is still hiring like crazy. So what we're basically <laughs> doing is we're taking white collar jobs that are paying 200000 and more and replacing them with $15 an hour minimum wage jobs. And we're supposed to think this is good. Like we're supposed to be proud of this low unemployment that we have. And that's what we're worried about with regards to inflation. Right. So I think that it's, uh, it's all a, uh, a very interesting time. But, I, but again, so we have this kind of, I think, correction happening, although we don't want to admit it. And again, there's every day, big companies are announcing thousands of layoffs. So we, we're definitely heading down that path. We're at kind of points where um, Debt service on consumer goods is starting to show up in the statistics where people are borrowing less, their safety net is being eroded, their housing prices are going lower, and therefore it's curtailing their consumer spending orientations. They're not moving as much, which is creating kind of a stalling in the whole uh, housing industry, right, which is a big part of the engine of U.S. economy. So I think it would be very, very naive and and one would have to ignore all the signs to not see that a recession of some magnitude is fa- is kind of facing us fairly quickly. And at the same time, our Fed is pronouncing that they're going to continue to raise rates uh, right. because they're, they're fighting some ghost that no one else really can see uh, except for them. And that's probably going to only cause a, a bigger chasm or a deeper downturn or whatnot. And and then you have all this obsolescence risk that we spoke of. Man, it's a tough time to be an investor, period. It, it is. So given the tough time, you've already talked a little bit about some of the thinking mistakes that people uh, you know, make, whether they intend to or not, uh, in these sorts of times. Are there any other thinking mistakes that you think that investors should be wary of or at least question themselves about? Am I making a thinking mistake? That this is an obsolescent proof asset. That is a question everyone needs to ask. But what are some of the other thinking mistakes we should be concerned about? 
Well, I think to make thinking mistakes, you have to be thinking. <laughs> <laughs> well put. Well put. <laughs> so let's just start with thinking, okay? Um, when I when I sit down with my partners at Mosaic, and this really is uh, an outgrowth of just you know the career that I've enjoyed and being around smart people in smart organizations, um, and I really attribute a lot of how I think about things to my bond trader starting in my career, I always ask myself and I always ask my people, where is the world going now? The big world, right? And what are the big trends that are, that I've got to be mindful of, right? And, uh, and then I want to invest strategically in accordance with that. So if one were to have looked at global macro, which is the phrase people generally used to summarize that, that what I just said, that question, what's, what is, what is the global macro picture, um, is really, and again, I, I do cover this in my business school class. If you were to list, which we do, if you were, if I were to say to your listeners, list, go, go get a whiteboard or a pen and paper and list all of the macro influences that could affect market prices well, it could be anything from interest rates to um, geopolitical issues like war and tariffs and trade relations. Uh, there's so many things. You would come up with a list that would be quite long. Let's just say 50 real things that could affect uh, market movements and price action in any one day. And it's hard to imagine which one is going to win the day that day. But if you were to look then kind of from 50,000 feet away, and say, okay, I'm going to ask, I'm going to look backwards over the last 35, 40 years. And I'm going to say, what was the number one uh, kind of overarching influence in markets? Well, in the last 40 years, it's interest rates having declined, right? When I, if you go back 40 years ago, the U.S. Treasury yielded nearly 16%, okay? And it went down to a low of a year and a half ago in the low ones, right? So uh, if you were, if you knew that, if someone were to tell you 40 years ago, that would happen, you would be, you would have been a very successful investor, okay? Because all you would have done was go long financial assets, whether it be apartment buildings or consumer good stocks or whatnot, like, like Warren Buffett did, by the way. And you would go long with staying power, meaning that you would know that there's going to be bumps in the road and there were bumps in the road. So you would need to have staying power to survive the bumps. But if you were staying power generally means longer term leverage or intelligent leverage. Right. Um, with staggered maturities and so on. But if you were to go long 40 years ago, just go long on good assets and with, with smart leverage, you were going to get wildly rich just because you got that macro trend, right? Right. So I think that I try to say to myself, man, I want to get the next 40 years right. I want to answer the question, like, what's going to be that for the next 40 years? And if I could just get that right, then I can come up with the right strategy. And so to me, that's what I invest a fair bit of my time doing when I ask about thinking and smart thinking and right thinking. This is how I think. And, and to answer that question today probably more than any other time, I ask myself, what does the U.S. government need to have happen? 
And and I, I learned this from the 2008 downturn where I realized that the real question one needs to ask is what can destroy the world? What risks are out there that threaten the existence of the world? And then realize that whatever needs to be done to solve for that so that the world doesn't blow up will be done. Somehow it will be done because nobody wants the world to end, right? So not the richest people, not the poorest people, not the weakest people, not the most powerful people. Everyone wants the world to live for another day, for another year, for another decade, forever. And so the, everyone will do what needs to be done and accept what needs to be accepted in order to perpetuate the world. So the U.S. government today, and the U.S. government today is at least as powerful as it's ever been, despite all the fears and proclamations to the contrary. Uh, the U.S. government and the Fed, to a very large extent, set the tone for the global economy. Um, so when I ask myself those two questions, like what risks threaten the world and what does the U.S. government want to have happen or need to have happen, I coalesce around this. Debt debasement, currency debasement, right? The U.S. government, like pretty much all governments around the world, are sitting with impossible to repay debts that's, that are only growing, okay, with deficits that are born from safety nets, social safety nets that are catching the fallen who are falling by the wayside because of technology, technology having displaced their industries, which is the trend that I believe will continue for the foreseeable future. And so I believe that the big story for the next 40 years will be the need to debase currency, which is a fancy way of saying inflation, okay? <laughs> Meaning the purchasing power of fiat currencies will go down and have to go down in order to right size and create an ability to kind of justify the levels of indebtedness that governments have and will continue to grow. So that means that basic things like the razor that you use uh, to shave or the hamburger you buy to eat or the rent you pay for your apartment will all go up significantly, as will your pay so that you could afford to pay for those things. And debt will then get right-sized. That's how I think the world will fix itself, will heal itself. And it, and it may take 20 or 30 or 40 years. Uh, but over that 20 or 30 or 40-year period, what I pretty, pretty much can guarantee is that the, the purchasing power of the dollar or the euro or the yen or whatever currency is in your pocket will be trashed compared to what it is today. And so investing according to that thesis seems to me to be uh, the right way to invest over the next 10, 20, 30, and 40 years. And, uh, and there are a number of ways to do that. But to me, that's how I think about things. Well, Ethan, I, I think I need to audit your class at Pepperdine the next time I'm out on the West Coast. Uh, this is fascinating, really great food for thought. Um, thank you for spending time with us. Uh, we've been speaking with Ethan Penner, who's the CEO of Mosaic Real Estate Investors. Um, and I look forward to chatting with you again sometime soon. All right. Thank you, Ethan. Pleasure. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the E5 Podcast. 
Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and others. A fire is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. Though A Fire is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information, the opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources, and do not necessarily reflect those of A Fire.